for listening to the 365 Amazing Women podcast. Remember, you can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher and TuneIn. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube. Visit 365amazingwomen.com Hello and welcome to episode 2 of the 365 Amazing Women podcast. I'm Adam Ditchburn. Today my guest is Elaine Bell, who will be discussing two amazing women, her foster mother, Dorothy Chadwick, and the poet and writer, Maya Angelou. Hi Elaine, welcome to the show. If you wouldn't mind just introducing yourself for our listeners, that would be great. Okay, well my name's Elaine Bell and I work for a sexual health agency in all called Corner House, and my job is to offer support to commercial sex workers. And you're going to talk to us today about two women that you want to add to this podcast. Well, one is Maya Angelou, and the other one is my foster mother, who's unfortunately no longer with us, but her name's Dorothy Chadwick. So we're going to start then, we're going to talk about... um, the writer, um, civil rights activist, poet, yeah, dancer, dancer real, sex worker, yeah, everything. yeah, everything. So yeah, let's just start with um, well, let's just go with what. Why have you picked Maya Angelou? Well, I was quite a late comer to to Maya's work. Um, I first sort of like, I can't even say that I discovered her. Um, my sister in law lent me a book when I was pregnant with my youngest daughter, um, in nineteen ninety three, and um, it was. I know why the cage bird ring, uh, sings, not rings, sings. <laughs> um, and I read that and I just thought, wow, you know, this woman's really got something to say. And then didn't realise that she had about six or seven autobiographies. And even hearing that makes you think, she's obviously had a very interesting life if she can get seven books worth out of it. And then obviously found out that she was a poet. And you just find, the more you read about her, the more you found out about her life and... The, the experiences that she's had and the things that she's overcome. Um, and I just think she's a fascinating woman and, you know, such a loss, really. What is it about Maya Angelou that really speaks to you? I think her life resonates with um, a lot of my clients, to be perfectly honest. A lot of my clients have um, been through similar sort of um, experiences that she has. I mean, obviously, she was... Um, she was raped when she was very young, and um, you know there's been a lot of a lot of abuse in in her in her life, and um, I don't know whether it's common knowledge, but Maya actually was a sex worker at one point, and um, I found her quite inspirational, to to sort of um, I can talk about her to my clients, and say you know you don't her being a sex worker wasn't the only thing that she was she didn't allow it to define herself and that's what I'm trying to get across to my client yes you're a sex worker but that's not all you are you're a wife you're a sister you're a daughter you're a mother you're all of those things so you know not just a sex worker because I think um society has a very narrow view about what sex work is and what sex workers do and I think someone like Maya Angelou proves that yeah, you can be a sex worker, but you've got so many other facets to your, to your personality. And have you have you listened to her recite any of her work? Oh, we're talking about a voice. We She's are, got an yeah. amazing voice. I love a voice. It's so warm and 
and just it's a wonderful voice. It's strong, isn't it? It's but an has iconic a, voice, a, yeah. you know, like once you've heard her, you would recognise that voice no matter where you were mm. and in what circumstances you heard it. It's an amazing voice. I'd love to have her voice. Well, there's a real unique mix, I think, isn't there, of, um, of her accent and then the kind of deep sort of tone as well. It's such a sexy voice. It's, a, it's an amazing voice. Amazing. Is there one of her poems that does stand out to you? The Cage Bird which one of the first ones I read, because I thought, well, why did she call her first autobiography Anna Why the Cage Bird Sings? And then I realised that she'd actually written this poem. Um, and I, I mean, don't ask me to recite it because I can't recite anything, but I did feel that it was like, it was talking about um, the um, experiences of black people in America, you know, overcoming slavery and, um, you know, the, the contrast between the cage bird, like being tired and you know its wings clipped, and the the bird that could fly free, and but even though its wings had been clipped and its feet had been tired, it was still singing. It still had something to say, and you know they can take so many things away from you, but they can't take your voice away, and they can't take your feelings away from you. And I found that quite powerful. I mean, if you've read any of the books, you, you know that she had a very poor poor childhood, but in a lot of ways she was quite privileged because, you know, her grandmother that she was living with had her own store, so they never went hungry. Mm. And, you know, there was always that sense of, like, she was privileged, but she accepted that and she realised that. And, you know, she didn't she didn't use it as a way of, like, looking down on anybody. It mm. was just she accepted how, how privileged she was and just got on with things, really. Yeah. And, you know, the, the experiences that she had when she was raped as a child. Um, there's a part of, like, Anna Why the Cage Bed sings where she says that she um, she stopped talking. Um, the guy that had raped her went to went to court. He went to court and he, uh, I don't know, he got something like a day in prison. But, you know, a few days after that, he was killed. Yeah. And the, the inference is, although she didn't say it, that it was maybe part of her family that had killed him and um, she decided that she couldn't speak anymore because her voice was that powerful that just by saying his name she'd killed him and she and was mute for several years I think I think it was she? about five years yeah. and it was only when she went back to her grandmother's and she met another lady whose name escapes me but she introduced her to all these different authors and that's when she found a voice again you take someone like my Angelou and we we see, I mean, even if you've read the books, you see that in the end, the full biography, don't you? You see the person and all that they've been through. We see the finished product. Exactly. You know, like there's been, obviously, there's been a, a journey to get to that part. And the fact that she can she can write with such a, a childlike understanding of what was going on in her life then is quite remarkable, I think. If there was one thing that we could take from Maya Angelou that can really influence and inspire the world today what what would that be i think a lack of bitterness and the fact that she was forgiving and that she could look back on her life and see it as a series of um experiences rather than i mean obviously the doll shaped her but she was in charge of her life i think that's that's the thing you know you don't have to let what's gone be beyond you know past shape who you are today you can you can move on and you can change yourself. You're the only person that can change yourself. You know, yes, accept what's gone on before, but don't let that 
change your your attitude to people. Don't let it make you a smaller person. Don't make it change your viewpoint and make you a narrow-minded person. Just be accepting, and I think that's what she was. Thanks for listening to the 365 Amazing Women podcast. There's more in a minute. Remember, you can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and tune in. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Visit 365amazingwomen.com. Okay, so Elaine, the second person that you were going to talk about is your foster mother. Yeah, yeah. Her name, her name was Dorothy Chadwick, but nobody ever called her Dorothy. Her name was Dolly. And all I can say that her and my dad um, fostered me up at the age of five. And um, given the health problems that she had, I think even the fact that she wanted to foster anybody was pretty amazing. She had um, severe curvature of the spine. But it was in the days before they could do all the... Um, I mean, she'd spent a huge part of her childhood encased in plaster in a hospital bed. Um, but obviously they didn't have the technology to sort of like straighten the spine like they do now with surgery. Um, she was she was just under five foot, but her sisters were all five foot six, five foot seven. So you can see how, how much this had you know, affected even her height. And obviously there was various associated health issues that she'd had as well. And, um, yeah, I mean, she took me, well, they took me on when I was five years old and um, they fostered other children as well. And I just think the the bravery of the woman to take on who knows what, you know, because um, every time you foster a child, it's a, it's a bit of a jump in the dark. She was a very moral person, but without being sort of moralistic, if you know what I mean. So she knew what was right and what was wrong, but she didn't wag a finger at anybody. You know, she was... I don't want to sort of, like, put her in the same same frame as Maya Angelou, but in, in, in a way she was, because there was no bitterness as to her health problems or anything like that. And she was very accepting of people. And um, it used to make me laugh, because uh, when we used to live down Ings Road, which is um, an estate in Hull, and... Um, she used to do shopping for old people or people who were ill. And I'd be thinking, but mum, you know, like, you're not very well yourself. You struggled to get to the shops, but as long as she had a shopping trolley, she would go and do shopping for other people. And, um, you know, she would do things for her sisters. Her sisters were able-bodied. You just think, why, why were you running about after them? But it's the sort of person she was. She liked to help people. She liked to um, be involved and, you know, and I think, in her own way, she was very inspirational. I sort of took up fostering myself. I mean, I wasn't as successful as her. It didn't last as long. But um, I don't think I would have done if I'd not had the sort of experiences that, that I'd had with my foster parents. And as I say, I went to, her, went to her and her husband at the age of five and stayed there pretty much all the way through. Mm. Um, and to all intents and purposes, they were my parents. And as an adult, did you have a close relationship with her yeah yeah I mean I, d- I did with both of them but you know she was she was thrilled when I had my my own children unfortunately she wasn't around when my youngest daughter was born but she um she was around when when I had my eldest daughter and um you know it was really nice because I had two boys then I had a girl and she was um she was thrilled and um she did ask well she never actually asked but her favorite female name was Marie so I gave my daughter Maria's middle name. 
as a, I don't know, sort of a tribute, I suppose. Do, do you know anything else, like, about her background? Like, was she from Hull? Was that where she Yeah, was? yeah, she'd been, um, she'd been born and bred in Hull. And um, she, she had two sisters. Um, and strangely enough, she, um, her and her sister both married brothers. So that was quite unusual. But one of her sisters and my foster father's brother moved over to South Africa. So she felt that she'd lost a big part of her family. There was only her and her youngest sister in Hull. Um, but then, strangely enough, um, when they were both quite elderly, um, a sister and her husband came back from South Africa and um, moved quite close. But I don't think the relationship was ever the same because there'd obviously been, you know, 20, 25 years in between. With where, all of a life experience, yeah, I guess, yeah. And, you know, they, I'm not saying they haven't kept in contact, they had, but, you know, Dolly didn't have the means to go and visit them in South Africa. And they came over a couple of times, but, you know, three weeks' holiday is not the same as, like, you know, living just around the corner and being able to see each other every day. And also, because they were over in South Africa and their their lifestyle was completely different. Mm. I mean, even though um, my uncle, my uncle Bill as it was, um, he had absolutely no training in hospitality. He went from, he went over to South Africa working one job, stayed there for six months and then walked immediately into managing a hotel. Yeah. And so... Uncle Bill and Auntie Barbara then had servants that they paid a pittance. Mm. And that was really strange as well because my my foster father was a great trade unionist. So, you know, if he spoke to his brother and his brother would say, like, oh, yeah, well, we, you know, we've got this girl who comes in and does this and does that. And, oh, we pay her peanuts. And my dad used to go mad. He was like, how, how can you do that? You know, how can you sort of like be happy with somebody looking after you. You don't need looking after. You're an adult, do it yourself. But that was really common in, in South Africa, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, it? absolutely, you know, yeah. absolutely. And I remember sometime in the early 70s, they came over for a visit and uh, we went to a restaurant, which was quite a treat then because it wasn't something that we'd do, you know, normally. And uh, we were sat in this restaurant and uh, with my two cousins, Malcolm and Susan, and... Um, a black guy walked in. Well, you know, we didn't think anything of it. But Malcolm and Susan, who had been brought up from being very young in South Africa, where apartheid was a big deal, um, were absolutely horrified that he could come in and sit in the same part of the restaurant as them. Mm. And my Uncle Bill was going, it's different here, it's different here. And, you know, that gave my dad an opportunity to go into a lecture about all people being equal and... It was just a completely different experience and um, something that I think my mum really struggled with. I mean, Struggled with her sister living that? Yeah, I think my mum had... All, I mean, obviously, my mum had always supported my dad in his trade union stuff and, um, you know, had pretty much the same sort of, like, feelings. And to think that, like, her sister was exploiting someone poorer, weaker than herself just didn't sit right with my mum. But it was a sister, so, you know, what do you do? Quite. I think she was quite conflicted. Yeah, yeah. And um, I think that told when, when Barbara and Bill came back to England and suddenly they weren't in a position where they could afford people to clean up for them and, you know, go shopping for them. And um, I think my auntie Barbara relied quite heavily on my mum. But And my mum did it because that was the sort of person that she was. You know, she would go shopping for her sister and she would do this, she would do that. But I think um, I think it irritated her. Whereas, like, 
years before it wouldn't have done. But now I think because Barbara, had, as far as my mum was concerned, had exploited people who were poor and weaker, um, my mum sort of resented that. Like, you know, who do you think you are? Just because mm. you've had servants over in South Africa, you can't come over here and think that we're all going to run about after you. But still she did, you know, which is quite ironic, but that mm. was the sort of person that she was. She would do anything for anybody. How do you think that's um, influenced you? I would I would like to think that um, a lot of what I do at work and... Um, I think she taught me not to judge people. Um, there was a lot of things that I had um, hanging over me from my my real mother that I was very judgmental. I think when you when you're sort of like young or in your early teens, it's easy to be judgmental and think, well, I I would never do that, and she was wrong for doing this. Um, and I'm sure I'm sure my foster mum had similar sort of like views but she would never express them because she didn't want to say oh your mum was a bad person or your mum shouldn't have done this your mum shouldn't have done that um and i think i think that was what she's passed on to me that you shouldn't judge you you should walk a mile in somebody's shoes before you judge because you don't know what that woman what that man's going through they make me they might make decisions you might make different decisions but you don't know until you've been you know, being in that position, you just can't can't say. So I, was, I think that's important, isn't it? And all, was probably part of the reason you felt secure with yeah. them as, as your, your yeah. Caregivers. I think I think it is important, but I don't think it's always that easy. No, you know, as as you know, people do have their own opinions, and it's very difficult not to not foist them on people, but to at least discuss discuss those opinions with people um especially when you live in the same house but i never got the impression that she looked down on on anybody or you know judged anybody did you ever talk about that stuff when you were an adult it was never not talked about mm. that's the thing you know if there was any questions that i had i was always you know always felt happy you know quite free to talk about it and ask questions but there were certain things that um my mum would say my foster mum would say, look, I can't really discuss that with you because I don't know the full facts. Mm. And I can't say this was right or this was wrong because I don't know the full facts. So it would be really unfair to sort of, like, make judgments. Which, I, you know, looking back, I think, given the circumstances, I think that was a very nice way of, like, dealing with things. What a really good quality to have, like, to yeah. be able to... To, and and it sounds like it was really honestly meant, you know, yeah, that, yeah. that actually... Because the value of having all the information, no one apart from the person in question has all the information, and but not everyone can see it like that. So I think for her to be able to is really special. I think also, if you think about, like, uh, 1960s in Hull, it was... I mean, it's still got a small men, small town mentality now, but it was even more so mm. then. And I think she had a... Um, rumours and you know bits of this and bits of that but again you know she could maybe when you're gossiping away and you know like people do she could have said oh well I heard this but she never did although I knew that she had heard things and you know she had spoken to people who knew my real mother but it was never sort of like well I've heard this and oh did you know that your mother used to do this there was none of that so she didn't sort of like whatever judgment she'd made for herself she didn't put them on me which I think was, you know, really good of her. 
I, I like to think that if she hadn't had the the sort of um, disabilities that she did have, um, she could have done a lot more with her life than she actually did. But obviously she was um, hard bound by the disabilities that she had. There were certain things that she mm. couldn't do. And like you say, just just not just like the social kind of support that could be there today, but I guess just like you said, the medical absolutely um, position was, is totally different. Yes, she was. Um, she was not a very well woman at the end of her life, and um, you know I remember speaking to the doctor in the hospital just after she died, and he was saying, you know, like this, it's a shame because there's so much that we could have done, if you know, mm. if she'd have been, if she'd have been in that position now, but unfortunately they didn't have the, mm. they just didn't have the knowledge. I think that's one of the the hard things, you know, like you. Especially if you've known someone that's had a particular condition or a particular illness, and then when it's when new things come, but it's obviously too late for that yeah. person, it's bittersweet, isn't it? Really, well, there is a sense of sadness there because you think you could have done so much. You know, you could have been not that she didn't do anything with her life. I'm not saying that at all. You know, the fact mm. that she, you know, brought up foster children. Yeah, it sounds some, like she did some amazing some things. Some were like very damaged, but you know, she could have done so much more. She could have had a career. She could have. You know, she always, she liked to dance, but she couldn't because of her, you know, because mm. of her disabilities. And you think you could have been a dancer, you know, or even if you just did it for fun, you could have done that. Mm. But um, I think her life was sort of hidebound by the condition that she had. Well, I think I think she sounds like an amazing woman. She was, but I don't think she saw herself as being amazing. But mm. I think you find that with a, a lot of people who are exceptional. They don't see yeah. themselves as exceptional at all. That's kind of the point of this show is sort of um, to talk about some of those women that, you know, recorded history will regard as amazing, such as Maya Angelou. Mm. But then also to kind of talk about the people that, you know, the great history of the world might not, Mm. notice but in individual people's lives um they're they're no less amazing and you know the two women that you've talked about today i think and one of the things that i've picked up on what you've said is about the the lack of bitterness and and that that kind of really echoes through both of the stories and i think it's reflected in you as well thank you for sharing that with us thank you for having me Thanks for listening to the 365 Amazing Women podcast. I'd like to thank my episode two guest, Elaine Bell, for sharing some of the inspiration she's taken from Maya Angelou and Dolly Dorothy Chadwick. I hope you enjoyed the show. Remember to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher or TuneIn and visit 365amazingwomen.com.